Hello and welcome to a time of edification with Caruso Ministry. Get ready to be edified and equipped to edify others. Ready? Let's begin. So today we are starting a new series on um, the topic discipleship the Bible. All right, discipleship the Bible. And you know, this teaching is a teaching that is going to be to an extent practical. All right. The teaching is going to be one that is also corrective. Corrective, right? Because, of course, I mean, in the teaching of God's word, you have correction. The Bible says in 2 Timothy 3 and verse 16, all scripture is given by the inspiration of God. It's profitable for doctrine, all right, for reproof, for correction, and for instruction in righteousness, all right? So what that lets you know is that the teaching of God's word involves correction. So one thing you should expect in this teaching is that you will be corrected, all right? If you are not willing to be corrected, you cannot be a student of the word. That's just the honest truth. So you should expect correction in this teaching. All right. And um, I also want to say that one of the things you need to learn as a minister of the gospel, when you follow a man, all right, when you're being taught by someone, isn't just what he's teaching or what he's saying, but how he's saying it. And very importantly, the reason he's saying it. Because most people actually do not recognize or understand how to follow a man. They don't actually know how to follow most people don't. But I mean, I don't blame them also because following or followership is a topic that people have not taught in the body of Christ. And that's the reason a lot of times the kind of followership you actually see in the body of Christ is cultural followership. That's the truth. What we have, like, particularly in a place like Nigeria, that is heavy, that, you know, that, that is very heavy on culture and honor and respect. Oftentimes what we have is actually cultural discipleship, not scriptural discipleship. That's the truth. You understand? And so, oftentimes, the kind of honor we have for people, for example, in the church is a function of their age, not necessarily, you know, um, the fact that they are laboring over us. You understand? Just as, for example, the idea, you have churches who believe that elders in the church are people who are people above a particular age. And that's not in scripture. Elders in, ch- elders in church are actually men who labor in the word and in doctrine. You understand? So, you need to recognize what scripture is as you know followership or discipleship or so on and so forth all right now this is not to say of course that you don't respect other people in the church but paul gives you know he, he actually clearly tells you how they are to be respected for example he tells timothy do not correct an elder all right he says but admonish him as a father do you understand so there is actually a respect for gray hair but you must realize that um honoring the local church is not by gray hair that's it honoring the local church is by the work done by those who are doing the work and it is to those who are doing the work all right honor the local church is premised upon labor not old age but is there honor for old age yes there is all right there's also honor as well for your father and your mother do you understand it's the honor that is supposed to accord your father you will never understand you will never have polite revelation to the point where you will not need to honor your parents anymore and one of these things, I'm probably going to talk about that. Honor for parents. You know, it's something that we need to heighten now much more than ever before. You know, for some of us, because we already understand, you know, polite epistles and polite revelations. I understand, for example, that in Christ Jesus, we are blessed. It doesn't really matter the words that your parents pronounce over you. It doesn't matter whether your parents pronounce a blessing over you or even sometimes a curse. It doesn't really matter. In Christ Jesus, I'm blessed. Who God has blessed, no man can curse. And so on and so forth. Well, there's a truth to that, but well, it's not entirely true. Because the truth is, whether you like it or not, God decided that you wouldn't fall from the sky to be on this earth. 
God proposed that you were going to be on this earth and decided to bring you through a particular person. And why, of course, some parents can be overbearing, the reality of it is they are your parents, all right? And so there is a honor due them. And one of these days, hopefully, we'll have time next year. I'm just going to talk about honor for parents and stuff like that. Now, I just said everything I said there to just drive home one point. As we go through this teaching, for example, you must pay, and subsequent teachings, learn to always pay attention to number one, what is taught. What is taught? Because now, I'm going to say this, largely based on the emphasis that we had in KCM, there's going to be a lot more emphasis now on discipleship. And so, you see, there is a way you train just students of the world, of believers who are growing, and there is a way you train a discipler of people. There's a way, it's not the same. That's the reason, you look at the epistles of Paul, for example, you would notice the change in language between epistles to the church and epistles, for example, to Timothy. Epistles to Timothy, for example, were largely instructive. So you must expect to have much more instructions now than ever before. Now, of course, that's for some of you anyways. To be honest, for some of you, you still need to be taught. That's just the truth. All right. But the reality is that for some of you, you're going to have much more instructions now than ever before. For some of you, you need to be paying more attention now to not just what is taught, but how is his thoughts. How, how was it explained? What examples were used? Why did this person use this kind of example? What are the limitations of this example? Now, that's how to think like it is. Just that. How does it think like a disciple? Okay, what made him even pick this topic in the first place? I'm going to talk about that, you know, soon, all right? What made, what made him pick this topic in the first place, all right? And how is he able to, you know, drive his point home? Those are things to think about as a disciple. Because now you have to recognize that you are not just learning the word for yourself, you are learning the word for others. Paul said to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 2, the things you have heard of me among many witnesses, he says the same commit unto faithful men who shall be able to teach others also. So now you must recognize that your Bible study, your seriousness is more than just for yourself. There are now people... So now our discussion now is no more do you read your Bible every day, do you Pray every day or stuff like that, you know, for your that's not a discussion. Our discussion now is how often do you labor for the sake of the people you want to teach? Because you must recognize also something your labor for your personal study, even from your labor to teach others, you cannot afford to substitute one for the other. So you cannot afford to say, Oh, you know, the study I'm doing for for them will cover for my personal. Mm -mm -mm. You must have your personal times of Bible reading and Bible study. Do you understand? You must now also have the times when you study so as to go and teach. They are separate. Do you understand? Now, those are things, of course, that you're going to have to learn as a disciple. All right. So, open your Bibles with me. Let's just read. Um, open your Bibles. First Thessalonians chapter 3 from verse 9 to 11. First Thessalonians chapter 3 from verse 9 to 11. This is where we're starting from today. First Thessalonians chapter 3 from verse 9 to 11. I read. It says, What thanks can we render to God again for you? For all the joy wherewith we joy for your sakes before our God, he says, Night and day praying exceedingly that we might see your face and might perfect that which is lacking in your faith. He says, Now God Himself, our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ, direct our way unto you. Let us pray, Father God, we thank you, we thank you for your word, we thank you for the ministry of the Spirit. We pray, Father, that as we look into your word, um tonight that questions are answered doubts are dissolved and we become much more effective in that which you have proposed for us in a time like this in jesus name we pray amen hallelujah all right so now 
Paul introduces a very, very interesting concept here. This was Paul to the Thessalonian church. And look at what he says once again, particularly in verse 10. All right. So he's talking about him being with them physically, him reaching out to them, him being with them. All right. And then look at what he says in verse 10. He says, night and day, praying exceedingly that we might see your face and might perfect what is lacking in your faith. Perfect? What is lacking in your faith? Paul, what's going on? I thought these guys, according to Colossians chapter 2 from verse 9 to 10, are complete in him who is the head of all principalities and powers. All right? You know, how then do they how then do they have things that are lacking in their faith? So now you have to ask questions. You know, when you study your Bible, this is something very important. You don't just you do not read. You have to ask questions. If Paul said this here, why is he saying this here right now? If Paul says, for example, that our old man is dead. All right, and it's crucified. I would not crucify with Christ and he's dead. Why then is this thing that we should mortify? What, what exactly are we mortifying? It's already dead. So that's how to think through scriptures. So now you want to ask yourself, Paul, what are you saying? How can you say that there are things that are lacking in the believer's faith that needs to be perfected if you already say that the believer is completing Christ? Do you understand? So now this is where context then begins to come in. So in other words, Paul is saying here that even though you, by by nature, in your spirit, you are perfected with Christ. Because the Bible says, for example, 1 Corinthians 6 and 17, he says, He that is joined with the Lord is one spirit with God. As we've seen also in Colossians chapter 2 and verse 9, we are complete in him. So this perfection here is not the perfection in the spirit of a man or in the spirit of the recreated man or the born again man. Rather, it's a perfection that has to do with mind. That has to do with spiritual growth. So even though you are saved already, your spirit is perfected already, there are still things that you have to do to your mind, for example, to renew your mind. There are still things that you have to learn. There are things you have to learn. So that's what Paul is speaking about here. So he actually says, see, there are actually things that are lacking in your faith. And the reason I am there is so that I can actually do something about it. I can perfect what is lacking in your faith. I can perfect what is lacking in your faith. Look also at Romans chapter 1 and verse 11. Romans 1 and verse 11. Romans 1 and verse 11. He says, For I long to see you, that I may impart unto you some spiritual gifts. He says, To the end that you may be established. That is another place again that may yield some confusion. I mean, we just did our series on tongues by the Spirit. Tongues by the Spirit, very extensive tongues by the Spirit. And we saw that, of course, you know, the gifts of the Spirit, for example, according to 1 Corinthians 12, are present in the Spirit of God, and the Spirit of God is present in the believer. So in the real sense of it, all of the gifts of the Spirit are made available to the one who believes in Christ Jesus. So what then is Paul speaking about here when he talks about imparting spiritual gifts? Interestingly, the word gifts here is also the word charisma. Interesting is the word charisma. But now here's the thing. You have to, this is where context comes in, as I said before, that you need to understand that the kind of gift that Paul is talking about here is not the exact same thing that is spoken about in 1 Corinthians 12. You know, during this week, I was having a conversation with someone. In fact, it was not just this week, it was yesterday. All right. And it was something about a particular tweet that was made. All right. And, you know, the person, it was, it was a tweet around receiving the end of your faith, even the salvation of your souls. Uh, and I mean, the, the, the idea of soul is actually a topic I've not talked about before. I don't think I've thought about it before. All right. And in fact, one of you actually asked me a question about it a while ago about the soul. And I just explained one or two things to him. All right. A major misconception that people always make. For example, let me just say this here that I, I believe would aid your personal Bible study. Oftentimes, when we hear soul in scriptures, the only thing that comes to their mind is like soul as per the mind. 
all right so body soul and spirit all right so body soul which is the seat of emotions the mind and the spirit and that was not entirely wrong but the problem there is they make a huge mistake of thinking that every place in scripture where soul was used it was used to refer to the mind and that's a very big misconception very very big misconception a very good example in acts 2 and verse 41 it says that three thousand souls were added to the church the question you want to ask yourself when it says three thousand souls does it mean only their minds were added but their spirit and their bodies were not added to the church no no if it says three thousand souls were added to the church in that context soul will refer to people the entirety of the person three thousand people were added to the church same also in Stephen's sermon in Acts 7. Stephen said that, you know, when Jacob went to meet, um, is it Jacob now? Yeah, when Jacob went to meet Joseph in Egypt, he says he went with 75 souls. 75 souls. Now, just, so, just to be clear, these people were not dead. They were still alive. He was referring to his children, you know, his children, his wives, his slaves, and so on and so forth. So he went there with 75 souls. And by souls there, it wouldn't be referring to just, of course, their minds, but the entire people. He went there, he went to um to um he went to meet Joseph in Egypt with 75 people. All together, 75 people. So that would let you see the soul in scripture. And I mean, there are still a lot of other examples. I just have to say this one's off my head. So soul in scripture does not always refer to the mind. Soul can refer to the entirety of a person. Right now, so when he says receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls, there is a way you must now also what also determines the usage of a word, for example, is not just the word in the Greek, because interestingly, the word soul in the Greek is all the same thing. I think it's the word suke. Literally, so it is the same everywhere. But then the context now makes you understand what he's speaking about. Because in context from first Peter, he was already saying, you know. Um, he was talking about the trial of their faith being much more precious than silver or gold that perishes. He was talking about the glorious appearing of Christ. So when he's telling them, receiving the end, the finality of your faith, the salvation of your souls, he's telling them about something futuristic. Now, I don't want to go there. You can touch that in your personal study. But why did I say that? I said that just saying, you cannot therefore just arrive at a conclusion of what a word is because it is used in other places. Because this, this is one of the mistakes with people that use the Greek. That this is a mistake you can easily fall into because it's like it's it, it's happens to people that use the Greek without really trying to think through certain things. Even in the English language, the, a word can mean more than one thing. So when you use the lexicon, for example, which is a Greek dictionary, you can see, for example, in the lexicon that oh, a particular word can mean more than one thing. So what determines what the word? So these are the different meanings of the word. However, the actual meaning. Or the specific meaning that is used here can only be known by context. And that's the reason why, if you remember, in our, in our, um, I think in Kerizo Bible Conference, I said this, that when it comes to personal Bible, or when it comes to Bible study, context takes precedence above the Greek. There are still words, for example, you don't even need to check the Greek to understand what they mean, quite frankly. From just the context, it makes sense to you, this is actually what this particular verse means. And that's just what it is. But if at all you had to use the Greek to understand something, there are times when you're going to check the Greek meaning of certain words. They will have more than one meaning. For those of you who use Iswadi, for example, you know what I'm talking about. It's going to have more than one meaning. The way you know what is actually meant is that when you now go into context. Go and check by context what he's trying to say. Now, I said all that to just say, so here in Romans chapter 1, verse 11, where he says that I want to impart onto you some spiritual gifts. You must now understand that gifts, the fact that gifts is the word charisma, you, you have to check, does charisma specifically mean just 
the gifts of the Spirit. And if you check, you see, no. Charisma just means endowment by the Spirit. So, if, so in the context of 1 Corinthians 12, the endowment can be the endowments required to do the work of ministry within the context of 1 Corinthians 12. Or it could, it could mean any other kind of endowment that is by the Spirit, or that is spiritual in nature. So what that means is the context defines what it means. So don't just jump and say, because it's the word gift and it's the word charisma, oh, that just means it's the same kind of gift spoken about in 1 Corinthians 12. No! Because the mistake the person also made was that because the person saw, and, and I mean, so sometimes also, let me just say this, and I think I said this to you guys before, you need to learn to be honest in your Bible study. Don't do guru to the answer. Don't do, in fact, the funny thing was, so the person asked the um, question on a particular group page. And because me, I know, if I'm going to answer you, I mean, of course, I, I either send the voice notes. In fact, most of the time, I send, I send the voice notes. The only reason I didn't send the voice notes to this person was because this was the first time I was talking to the person, so I, I didn't know it was going to, you know, um, speak well. All right, and I knew I could not send my explanation to the group page. Reason being because, first of all, somebody had even tried to explain, and it was a rule to the other kind of thing. Basically, just said, you know, the word end there means fulfillment, not necessarily the end. <laughs> that kind of thing, you know, all those funny, funny Bible study in Greek and stuff like that. And interestingly, by the time I sent her a message in a DM, you know, in a DMs, try to, you know, just explain this stuff to her, I think what I wrote would probably have been, you know, even I was because I sent a message on my WhatsApp on WhatsApp on my laptop. I was beyond one page, on, it was actually beyond one page on my on my WhatsApp on laptop. It was really long, and I tried to explain to her how what the what the so-called Greek scholar did was wrong. Just that Greek is not an excuse for you to Greek is not what you do when you want to try to explain what you want, but it's not looking like it with that verse. Then you now use the Greek. That's not what Greek is. That's the reason why a lot of people. Who hear us teach the Greek can sense the insincerity in people's teachings, and that's the reason why they don't listen. Greek is not an excuse for you to actually impose what you want into the verse. No, the Greek is just the means for you to actually understand what is being said. Because and that would, of course, influence how you study it. Because that word, I now have to show her how that word telos in the Greek, end of your faith, end. Telos. I had to show her how telos was used in other places in scripture to actually show that end actually means finality. Because interestingly, I also personally thought the way that guy thought. I also wanted to say end there doesn't necessarily mean the end of something. It could just mean the fulfillment of something and so on and so forth. But the honest truth is by the time I saw it through scripture, by the time I looked at all of the other places where telos was used, I saw everything as end. So I'm not, now my sincerity here has to come in. I'm not now going to try to turn it around. Do you understand? Because maybe this lady is not going to check. No, I'm going to have to stay with whatever Bible says. And so I now have to show her how that, you see, the law actually means end, though. It means the finality, the fulfillment. It means it's not just fulfillment as far as it can happen right now. It actually always means something that is the end of something. So if it says the end of your faith, it actually means the finality of your faith, the totality, the culmination of your faith in its entirety. That's what he's speaking about there. All right. Now, I even said that to say, so this lady was trying to say that the word salvation, there's the word soteria, which means to save. And she just said, oh, that uh, can't it just mean salvation from sin since it's the word soteria? And I was like, no, soteria just means to save. You understand? It means to save. So you now have to sit down and now see the context to know what that salvation is about. So, for example, in Philippians 1 verse 19, Paul spoke about them praying for him that it will turn on to his salvation and the supply of the Spirit of Christ. And he was referring to his deliverance from prison. Interestingly, the word deliverance there is the word soteria. So, if soteria just means salvation, then 
what will you see? So are you trying to say that Paul in Philippians 1 verse 19 was telling them to pray for him so that he will become saved? No. No. So soteria just means salvation. It means to save. It means to deliver. Do you understand? But then the context now tells you what exactly it is talking about. In um, Hebrews chapter 9, and I think 9 and verse 24, for example, it says that um, Jesus will come a second time and he will appear unto salvation without sin. So it tells you Jesus is coming a second time. He's, he's coming for salvation without sin. In other words, he's not coming to take away sin like he came the first time. He's coming this time for salvation. And by that salvation, he's talking about the redemption of our bodies. What's going to happen at the culmination of our faith, which is actually the context of 1 Peter 1 and verse 9. So now that salvation there as well is also soteria. But what soteria is he talking about there now? He's talking about soteria from the corruption of our flesh that we are going to receive incorruption at the resurrection. So that's the point. So you don't just say, oh, because this is what he says in Greek. That's what, mm, mm, mm. Context. Context. And so that's what I'm trying to say here. So spiritual gift, as well, he says, I will impact onto you spiritual gifts. You shouldn't now be saying, ah, but we already have the gifts of the Spirit in us. Mm -mm, mm -mm, mm -mm. My bedroom. Mm -mm. Pay attention to the context. I will impact onto you spiritual gifts. It means there are spiritual things I have to give you. And sometimes impartation of spiritual gifts here is teaching of God's word. The teaching of God's word is an impartation of spiritual gifts. And to just be clear, because now you might not want to play smart and say maybe the word impart there actually doesn't mean to give something. It actually means to maybe steer what you already have. Mm -mm, mm -mm. The word impart there is actually the word the Greek did something didomi, I think. I actually checked it, but I don't have it written here. I think it's the word didomi. You can check it in your personal study. All right. It actually means to give. <laughs> it means to give over. <laughs> so it's actually not saying to stir up something you it's actually giving you something you don't have. <laughs> All right. So when he says I want to impart onto you spiritual gifts, teaching is an example of impartation of spiritual gifts. That's the truth. All right. Teaching is an example of it. All right. So it's actually giving you what you don't have. And I said all of that to just say this. So what that means is pay attention when you have someone over you in the Lord or someone who is teaching you God's word. You must understand that they are giving you something you don't have, and you must recognize it. Do you understand? So you are not. So even though in Christ Jesus you are actually complete in Him, there is a finality of what you have, and so on and so forth. And in Christ Jesus you are perfect. All right, you 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 you've been made complete and perfect in Christ. The reality of it is there are still things that need to be done in you, and that is now the work of the person above you in the Lord. He now has to train you. He has to teach you the word. He has to help you grow. So on and so forth. So that's what Paul is speaking about here in Romans chapter 1 and verse 7. Go to Philippians 1 and verse 25. Philippians chapter 1 and verse 25. This particular verse is a very um, interesting verse because it's a verse that my pastor likes to quote a lot. All right. Philippians chapter 1 and verse 25. Philippians 1 and verse 25. He says, Having this confidence, I know that I shall abide and continue with you all for your furtherance and joy of faith. All right, your fordrance and your joy of faith. You know, and that show puts it as your progress and your joy in faith. So, in other words, there's a progress in the faith. There's, there's a progress. And, and, and you see, this is important to note because there is a way, both as a disciple and as a disciple, you can make this mistake. See, spiritual growth has an end in mind. And when I say an end in mind, I don't mean the end of it. I just mean there's a, there's a goal in mind for spiritual growth. You must have measurable increase as you grow we must be able to look at you now and look at you three months ago and be able to see the difference that's it you mustn't be the same way you must be able to look at yourself now 
and look at yourself one year ago and be able to talk about all those things that have changed. Your consecration must have gotten better. Your study of the word must have gotten better. Your comprehension of Bible truths must have gotten If those things have not changed, something is going wrong. You must recognize it. Because there's a way, because we've been ingrained with the culture of always going to church. I mean, a lot of us were raised in the church, for example. We were just raised. So even on Sundays, if you don't go to church on a Sunday, your body just feels weird. Just that. So a lot of us, if I just go to church on Sundays, we don't really plan to learn everything. I mean, of course, it shows in the fact that a lot of us go, or I don't want to say a lot of us, but a lot of believers who go to the church without their Bibles, without their pens, nothing to write with, nothing to document any, anything with, no form of expectation in their hearts. Just go to church and want to go and just leave because they've been programmed to do so. And I know, for example, you see some believers in church, we are singing, we are not singing. We lift our hands, you do not lift your hands. Kneel, we you don't leave. You just that. Everything, even after service, you are greeting one another, you don't greet, you just walk away. And then you won't force you to come. You could always decide not to come. But that's the thing. They have been, you know, they've been programmed to just show up in church or something. And that's even for some believers, when they get to a particular new location, they just find a church. Not because they need any sort of accountability. They just need to find a place to go to every Sunday to appease their guilt. And that shows, for example, in how they pick churches, for example, also. Because they don't really see the church as a place to grow them up spiritually. So it doesn't really matter to them. They don't bother asking, ah, this place I want to go to, do they really teach God's word there? Are they sound in the word? Are they going to make me effective with anything? No. They just have to go somewhere on the Sunday. And so that's why they find it easy to go to the closest church. Just that the church that is closest to them that has the shortest service. Because for them, it's not about actually doing something or receiving something. It becomes a social responsibility that they have to do. Something they have to fulfill. An obligation they have to follow after. That's really what it is for a lot of believers. All right? And so, but the reality of it is it tells you there is such a thing as a progress and join the faith. There's progress. And progress is obvious. Progress is obvious. You will know when someone has grown. It will tell you, it will tell in how they speak. It will tell in how they act. It will tell in how they do. It will tell in their decisions. There are certain things they're gonna do, for example. I can tell ah, see. You know, there's there are certain things that are going that some people are gonna do. There's certain kind of questions you're gonna ask me genuinely. And this is not to stop you, of course, from asking me questions. There are certain questions you're gonna ask that maybe me look at you and in my mind, I'm just gonna say, ah, she actually That's the truth. And now, of course, that's not to stop you from asking me questions, of course, because that means you're getting it wrong. Because the point of it is for me to find out where you are and then be able to now help you go to where you need to be. Do you understand? So the reality of it is that there is actually a goal in mind. There is progress in the faith to have. Look at 2 Corinthians 3 and verse 16. 2 Corinthians 3 and verse 16. It says, All scripture is given by inspiration of God. It's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, and for instruction in righteousness. But verse 17 is what I'm going to. It says that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto every good work. Now, when he uses the phrase man of God there, he already brings in the idea of a minister. And I want to say this, by the way, that you see, there are certain Christian words, or there are certain Bible words that mean certain things. When you see man of God in Bible, for example, you know, it's just that sometimes I like to joke about it. When I call man of God, and then they're like asking someone, and I say, Are you a man of the devil? Right? I'm just trying to play funny because the reality of it is really when you see man of God used in scripture, it actually is used for a minister of the gospel. Particularly in the Old Testament, the phrase man of God was always used for prophets, ministers. So if we are being honest with ourselves, 
not every believer is a man of God. And, and I don't mean it within the context of being called to the fivefold ministry gifts, right? I actually mean in terms of the work of ministry. Because not every believer is actually doing the work of ministry, even though they are supposed to. So we can't be calling you. So you are not a man of God just by virtue of your salvation. Now, of course, based on English, are you actually a man of God? Yes. You are actually a man that is of God. You are joined with the Lord. Do you understand? You are one spirit with God. You are the temple of God. So you are actually a man of God. You are a man from God. But genuinely, according to the context of Bible words and scripture, you are actually not a man of God if you are not doing the work of ministry. You are a man of God as a function of your work. A function of your labor in the work of ministry. That is actually what makes you a man of God. Right? But that's by the way. Let's just move on. So now, he says that a man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished also good works. So he brings in a context here. The context of a man of God. So now, look at something very important here as well. He says that the man of God may be perfect. And that's funny. Because you would expect that if he's a man of God, uh, he's already, he's there. You know, it's a finished product. But no, he says, no, that's not how it works. He says, the man of God has to be perfect. He has to be thoroughly funded onto good works. So even though you're a man of God, even though you're doing the work of ministry, there's still work to do. And look at the word perfect there. It's the word atios. It has to be ready. So he gives you an idea of ministry that involves readiness. Readiness. So meaning that before the work comes, so your work, for example, as the minister of the gospel, towards those people you are teaching, is to make them ready for the work. So you don't, this one way you can know that you're not doing your work well, is that at the point when people, maybe your disciples, for example, face a particular issue, or they face any particular matter, and they come to meet you, and you can recognize that this person is not ready to handle that thing yet. It can show you that there are lapses in your work. Because the way ministry is done, is ministry is not reactive, ministry is proactive. Ministry is proactive. So you are training people such that by the time they come around such a thing, they are ready, they are set to do it. So that's why it says that the man of God may be perfect, he may be ready. That's what Peter was saying in First Peter chapter 3 and verse 15. When he says, you know, uh, um, um, when he speaks about consecrating the Lord God in our hearts and being ready to give an answer as a reason that asks of asks of the um as a reason of anyone who asks for the hope that is in us so you must be ready beforehand so it's not something that you just begin to do when the question comes before the question comes you must have be prepared that's your work as a minister of the gospel so it says that the man of god may be ready he may be perfect the one perfect there is the word atios a-r-t-i-a-o-s it means to be ready that the man of god may be ready he says thoroughly furnished can you see that word thoroughly so, so there is a thoroughness with the gospel as well. There's a thoroughness. There, you know, there's a kind of there's a kind of teaching that you cannot use to raise disciples. Uh, and I mean it. It's just the truth. A, do you know what it means to be a disciple? It means to be a scholar. That's the word matutio. It means to be a scholar. It's from the word matutis, from the word mantano. Do you know that? So the word matutis actually refers to a scholar. Then mantano means to learn. So a, a, a disciple is a scholar of a particular subject. And you need to understand, and this is the cultural context now comes in, because you need to understand that the people that Jesus was talking to, these are people who were heavy in the rabbinic culture, where, of course, John also has its roots from, in the sense that, look at how, for example, they train students or children in Islam. You guys, some of you probably have heard of the idea of Wolimo. Wolimo is that, at the, at, well, by the time they are doing Wolimo, 
you have memorized the entire Quran. And in fact, what they do in the ceremony is that the child actually recites it. And sometimes you have children at the age of 12 or 14 doing Wolimo. And what that means, the child at the age of 12 or 14 has actually read through the Quran. Now, you know, even if what they are preaching or what their message doesn't have any power, for you to be able to indoctrinate someone to the extent that they can quote the entire Quran at the age of 14, it shows you something already. And so now, imagine that you are now in this kind of culture. Jesus now says, make disciples of every nation. What is going to come to your mind? That's the reason it was an anomaly for you to find the apostles teach a sermon that was no long. It's not possible. There is that. There is, see, the culture of short sermons does not find its place in the Christian church. It's not possible. It's not an apostolic way. It's not, how do you want to teach people? You say you are grooming believers. You are doing 30 minutes of sermon every week. Even 45 minutes is too short. Generally speaking, even one hour is too short. That's the honest truth. You cannot groom people that way. The culture of Bible study we see in the church is long, laborious hours. And now we can understand the fact that, see, okay, well, um, you know, because of our jobs, we are students and time and so on and so forth. But we must also recognize that this is not the normal. And as much as possible, we must do our best possible to bring back the actual normal. Long hours of Bible study. It's not, it's not the way it works. Let me see, for example, Jesus' sermons. Look at it. I've told you guys again and again. Jesus took unbelievers. Unbelievers. He took them to the wilderness and taught them for three days. Unbelievers. Three days camp meeting. Unbelievers. Ah, <laughs> there's a problem. And you have believers today. And notice all he was doing with them was teaching. No Suyan nights. No uh, variety nights. No, this, but you know, now today, if you want to do today, ah, with most believers today, you have to invite comedian. Just that you have to lighten the mood. You have to invite guest ministers to sing, to get everybody in the mood. Now, of course, you don't say guest, having guest ministers are, are wrong, is wrong or anything. But yeah, it's not that you're inviting them to lighten up the mood. You're inviting them because there is a goal in mind you want to achieve in the meeting that involves you bringing those kind of people around. So that so what I said that to just say that what we have in the church is a culture of long laborious teaching of the word. That's the culture we have. Why? Because you are trying to train men. You are trying to make them. That's actually how to make a disciple. You see, a disciple is not made by saying, "Oh, you are my disciple." I don't want to jump ahead of myself. But I'm going to talk about that very soon. A disciple is not made by "Oh, you are my disciple." A disciple is not made by the person that you check up on a lot. That's not a disciple. A disciple is raised by teaching. Because the word disciple literally means to learn. You understand? So you cannot be a disciple if you are not learning. It's just that simple. You cannot be a disciple. You cannot say, and I'm going to talk about, this is also one of the things I'm going to talk about in this teaching, the concept of spiritual fatherhood. You see, <laughs> there are certain things me I don't like to talk about because generally I don't really care. I'm not the, I'm not... I'm not faced by names. Names don't really matter to me. I don't really care. I'm not, I've never, I mean, I've actually never called anybody my son before or daughter in the faith or anything like that. Now, here's the thing. That I've, that I've not called anybody that doesn't mean I don't have. But the reality of it is, it's not the name that makes you. It's the work that makes you that name. If you call somebody your son from today to tomorrow, if it's not your son, it's not your son. Just that, if, 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 if someone 
just if someone wouldn't give birth to me, for example, calls me my son today. Well, maybe I just trying to be, you know, you're just trying to be, I don't know, nice towards me. But you're actually not my dad. I actually not my mom. That's the reality. So you is it's not confession of faith, it's salvation that you confess to receive or you confess to become, not ministry, <laughs> not spiritual growth. In spiritual growth, it is the work. That makes you that. It's not something I always say about the fivefold ministry gifts. Call yourself apostle from today to tomorrow. Doesn't make you an apostle. That's why scripture says there are such things as false apostles. Doesn't make you an apostle. Call yourself apostle from today to tomorrow. But guess what? If you don't call yourself an, if you like don't call yourself an apostle, and you have the seed of apostleship, you are an apostle. That's the truth. You're an apostle. And I've told you guys before. There are men of God in the body of Christ today who don't call themselves apostles, but are. That's, that's the kind of people may like. There's no need to be doing cleaning up and down. There's no need. That's that. You, you, you won't fight it. If you are, you are. <laughs> There's no need for the branding. It's not necessary. That's that. So, a lot of times when I hear people say things like, and then you find, particular, and personally, I also feel as a young minister, they're just, it's just good for your heart to avoid needs. It's just good for your heart as a young minister. So, you have somebody who has really done ministry for, a year, you're already calling yourself, you're already saying uh, sons in the pit. Ah, <laughs> sons in the pit. Oh, you go, <laughs> you're just like you're in between bastard and son. No, and you're calling people son in the pit. Don't do that to yourself. Don't. And most importantly, you need to understand what are the scriptural criterion for being called a son or a father. The people who call themselves father. The people who call themselves son and stuff like that, what were they doing? When you see, for example, the kind of relationship between Paul and Timothy, look at the letter that Paul wrote. Do you realize you cannot actually be the father of somebody you don't know? Is that basic, for example? You, you actually can't. You can't father somebody in absentia. You can't. You can't father somebody that you don't have close ties to. Imagine Paul was to Timothy, and I'm going to talk about this a bit more. And Paul said, take wine for your often infirmity. Meaning he knew about Timothy's health. Baba didn't hear. That's that's the father. He knew about Timothy's health. He knew about how Timothy was doing. Do you know that? The chances are, if Timothy were to enter a relationship, he would know. Are you with me? That's it. He would know. Okay, well, this and this and this is what was happening. If Timothy was checking babe, you have an idea. Do you know that? If Timothy was broke, he would know. So father is not ah, ah, my father. He doesn't work like that. And now we and now me. I mean, of course, I, I like to choose my fights wisely. Just that I don't I won't have someone say my father and I'm not jump and say he's not your father. Whether whether or not I shout it, he's actually not your father. So there's no point for me to be trying to make you change what you're saying and say he's not your father or something like that. Mm. Calling your father from this tomorrow is actually not your father. That's the truth. That's the truth. You understand? Your father doesn't know what your prayer life is like. He doesn't know what your Bible study life is like. Doesn't know what your outreach to evangelism life is like. Doesn't know about if you even have disciples at all. Doesn't know the last time you obeyed the leading of God's spirit. It's not your father. He's actually not. That's the truth. It's not your father. All right? So, so now, I mean, we're still going to talk about that a lot more elaborately. We study through scriptures. All right? But the point I'm just trying to say altogether is that there is a training as a man of God. There's a training. There's a teaching. There is an effectiveness with it. There is a labor to it. Constant teaching of the word. Laborious, excessive teaching of the word. Those are the things involved. All right. And so now, 
having seen this, this would mean, therefore, that the, the minister of the gospel or anyone who is in charge of discipling people must be somebody who has vision. You must have an end in mind, a goal. So now, when you recognize that, see, the point of coming to church, you learning God's word, is spiritual progress. You know, you can only measure progress if you actually have direction. Now, let me, let me explain what I'm trying to say. If you don't know whether a person is supposed to grow upwards or grow downwards, you will not really know if the person is progressing. Do you understand? The, way, the, the, meaning of, the way you can actually measure progress is that you know the actual direction the person is supposed to be facing. So if the person is going the other way, you can actually steer the person and say, mm, it's not this way, it's actually this way. So because if you don't understand what progress is, any form of deviation will look to you like growth. And that's also another mistake that people are making. Yes, if you don't know what progress is, you can see the manifestation of a demon and think the believer is walking in the things of the spirit because you actually don't know. Because, for example, there was that lady, you know, in Acts 16, who was actually giving accurate words of knowledge, giving prophecies. But, but Paul, and Paul could note by the spirit that this was not the spirit of God. And so now, if you were to see such a lady and you're somebody who is untrained, chances are you look at that and say, ah, such a means of the gospel, such mighty workings of power. And we probably even be saying, ah, the days are coming by the Spirit of God. There are days. They are covering nations, covering territory. Prophecy, demon, from prophecy. So it's not just by, you don't just see, you must know what progress looks like according to scripture. What does it look like? So that any form of deviation or any form of movement will not seem like progress to you because you know what progress is. And so what that means, therefore, as a minister of the gospel is that you have a vision. You, must, you see, one of the biggest mistakes that I've seen with most ministers of the gospel is lack of vision. You see, it is not noble to lack ambition. It's not. It's not noble. I don't, I don't want to make us think that, oh, that, that I have no ambition doesn't mean I'm noble. No, it doesn't mean, it just means that you're serious. That's just what it is. Now, don't get it wrong. You know, when I often say things like this, for example, that I don't have any plan for Kerizo ministry, for example, and I say I don't have any, you know, special thing plan and stuff. Don't miss it, though. What I'm trying to say is not that I don't have intentions or ambitions for charismatic ministry. It just means my ambitions are guided by God leading. It just means there is no plan I have personally that I'm going to impose upon the ministry. Because at the end of the day, it is God's work. So it's how he leads us that we go. But don't get it wrong, go. Oh, okay, all this labor I'm doing, I, I have plans for more people to heal. You have idea plans on what we should do. Why do you think we have Instagram page, for example? Why do you think we post about our sermon links? Why do you think we made a video, for example, for KCA to invite people? Why do you think we did all of that? So don't get it wrong. There's ambition. A lack of ambition doesn't make you noble. A lot of times it just makes you serious. You need some ambition with the gospel. When Jesus was talking to the disciples, for example, and he says, make disciples of all nations, he was giving them ambition. So to do God's work, you need ambition. You need it. You need to be able to see people a certain way. You be able to see places a certain way. You must see things. And you know, and I thought I thought about this in the audacity of faith. And I also thought about it in supernaturalness of speaking. You must learn to see things with the eyes of God. You must learn to see things with the eyes of faith. You must learn to see a place, for example. You must learn to see maybe a community that is filled with bars and that is filled with, you know, brothels and stuff. And you'll be able to see within that place an abundance of local churches filled with God's power. You must see, because that's the first thing. Your ability to see it will now command how you are going to do the work. 
And that's the problem. The reason a lot of us are doing the work like we are not serious is actually because we don't have good sights. We are not seeing the way God is seen. If you can just see the way God is seen, it will influence the things you do. That's the reason why sometimes you're going to see some people the way they walk, the way they live for the gospel. They are wondering, why are you, what giving you that? It's because there's something they are seeing that you are not seeing. The way they are looking at things. So, for example, you come across a person, you begin to disciple the person. Now, of the truth, this person is discipling. This person is someone who is not, is not serious with prayer, is not serious with the study of God's word, so on and so forth. You must have a vision in your mind for that person. Because it is that vision that will now compel you to keep going. So, every time when the person messes up, for example, you are not looking at the person. You are actually looking at your vision for the person. I see you as a minister of the nation. I see you as a disciple of many. That's what I'm actually seeing. So everything I am doing is the end that you actually become what I see in that vision. That's it. That, see, that is actually how you don't lose. You don't lose, what's the word now? You don't lose favor in ministry. Because see, if you just look at people the way they are, you, you, sometimes you want to just throw in the tile. But when you don't look at them the way they are, but you look at them with the eyes of the spirit as what God sees them, what they can be. Then even days when they act anyhow, that vision is what gives you strength to keep going. That's how the work of ministry is done. So the work of ministry is done with ambition. It's done with ambition. You must have plans. You must have, you must have things. In your mind, you must say, by this time, you must have covered this topic. By this time, they must have known this thing. By this time, they must have been able to do this and this and this. Don't joke, oh, I have ambitions for each and every one of you. It's, it's not the reality. That's what I'm supposed to do as a minister of the gospel. I'm supposed to have ambition for you. Do you understand? That's just what it is. You must do the work of ministry with ambition. That's why when Paul was speaking, all right, in 1 Corinthians 9, he says, I so long, not as one that beats the air. In other words, I'm not trying to, I'm not wasting my time here. I actually am doing things that they have planned. He says, he says, see, Many run the race, but no one is given the prize or no one is crowned unless he runs, you know, according to the rules. Just so you must know what it is you are looking for. You must do ministry with vision. Okay, if I disciple two people now or three people now, if I can focus on them for the next six months, all right, train them well, okay, then what's going to happen after that? Those three can now make, you know, they can now become effective and then begin to disciple other people. And then the work is going to grow like that. So now you already have vision. So at the point when your disciples are having disciples, it's not when you should not begin to try to figure out how you are still going to be able to have meetings with all of them. Oh, you're quoting me and no plan. Because you have ambition. Do you understand? You have, don't, see, there are certain things that will come around in Caruso ministry right now that cannot shake me. I've seen it before. I've prepared for it already. I'm ready. There's a reason... You you can come now, for example, and maybe you want to maybe any one of you, for example, wants to get married. And I'm not going to be wondering, hey, by the time you get married, hey, what are we going to do? I already have plans for how you'll be disabled even when you're married. Because none of those things move me at all. Now that's how a disciple is thinking. So you need to be thinking forward, have vision. If your vision for this person, for example, is that they will do God's work for the rest of their lives, you can't just keep seeing them as a student. How will this person still be in the work of ministry when they become when they begin to work, when they have a job, when they get married? So that what kind of decisions are they going to need to take? For example, if they if for example they are led to relocate, how exactly will they still be doing God's work even when they are outside this nation? Those are things to think about. So that's what ministry has vision. Only vision. So you must learn to always do ministry like that with a vision in mind. Don't just waste people's time. 
Don't just don't just slap people together and be teaching them God's word. You don't have any vision. You don't have any plan. You don't have any this thing. And don't get me wrong. So it's not all of us that it's not us that call to start a work. Genuinely, in fact, it's not most of us that call to start a work. That's the truth. That's the honest truth. Not all of us will. All right. But that doesn't change the fact that the work of ministry must be done with a vision. Sometimes your vision is just simple. My vision is to plant this person in a local church so that they become effective just like me. Simple. That that's it. That that's it. That vision. So you must have vision. You must have a plan. In two months' time, how many disciples do I want to have reached? How many disciples do I want to have raised? After I re- okay, after I'm able to reach this number of people, how many people can I handle at once? That's another question. How many people can I handle at once? How can I groom them to the point that they begin to now also go out to preach? That's vision. Vision. So you must have... So now, that vision will now influence everything you do. You see, one of the reasons why a lot of believers are doing unnecessary things is because they lack vision. One of the reasons why a lot of churches are doing unnecessary things, once a program carry that God did not send them to do, is because they actually lack vision. They don't really know what they are doing. They are just doing people's lives to play kites. They are thinking, so you see, when you lack vision, everything becomes a good idea. Even, you know, because this is the thing. Sometimes, some ideas are bad, not because they are inherently bad, but just because they are not for you. You know, I was talking to one of you a while ago, and I said, distractions are not always bad things. Sometimes distractions can be in themselves inherently good, but if it doesn't align with your goal, it is a distraction for you. So a very good example, you are trying to, for example, you are trying to maybe make a career change. You are, you are working as a banker. You want to make a career change into, let's say tech. That's what's happening a lot now. So tech, right? Now, let's say at your banking job, you are earning 100K or 120K per month. And then at the point you're about to port into your tech job, which even likely you might even get a pay cut. But at least you know that even if I get a pay cut right now, right, in the next two, three years, things are going to look a whole lot better than they are right now, right? So now you, 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 you're about to port. And then at the point in that way, you're about to port, they give you a promotion. And the promotion now you're going to be earning probably about 250K a month. Now you need to recognize the promotion is not bad. Promotions are never bad. <laughs> Do you understand? Promotions are never bad. It's even more money. More money you understand? You're a bigger guy now. Probably even have other HR benefits and stuff like that. But you need to recognize that in that particular scenario where you are planning to port and you already have a plan, that job, that promotion is a distraction. Now, when you understand this, you understand why there are a lot of things that people are doing that are good that we will never do in Caruso ministry. You know, it's just that. It, 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 it cannot. There's some things that see. Kolechele. Don't bother yourself. It can never happen. Well, or, I mean, unless if God leads me to. But it can never. Why? Because the fact that it is good doesn't mean it is part of our vision. And that's one of the ways you know a man of vision. You see, one of the ways you know a man of vision is that he doesn't do everything. And they generally don't move him. Yeah, okay. Ah, in fact, chances are, if you tell me you are doing this at your place, I say, glory to God, awesome. You know, I'm happy for you. And I'm genuinely happy for you. For real, I'm happy for you. I'm happy for what God is doing through you and stuff like that. But that's not our vision. Just that, so why are we not doing this and this and this right now? I'm not just convinced in my heart that that's what God wants us to do. That's how to do ministry. Ministry is with vision. With vision. So don't just do something because everybody's doing it. You don't. A very good example. I'm just going to say this in passing. You know, when we start our missions, for example, in Ife, it wasn't when we had, it wasn't that the times where we were in streaming meetings, it's not because we didn't have the resources to. It was because I just wasn't convinced in my heart that it was time to start streaming those meetings. That was it. Same as well, when we had our discipleship classes, 
the summons that we have posted are not the first set of summons we had. We had we already covered the, quite a number of things. That's a very interesting thing. I wish we actually have till now. For example, a very good one, for example, that I miss is MOG. I miss that summon. Personally, I miss it. I actually miss it. Do you understand? But we didn't record this. We, why? Because that was not, I was just not convinced in my hand that it was time to do it. Now that's vision. So I'm not going to see what other people are doing. Now, of course, there are people that I see, for example, and I admire. And if there are, there are things I one or two things I emulate from them, but not the core things like divine eating. No, you don't do things because other people are doing it too. You don't do it because you see a need for it. You do it because God told you to. You understand? And same it is with the work. So you 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 for example, in my discipleship, what are the most important things? Prayer, the teaching of God's word. Do you understand? Prayer, teaching of God's word, evangelism. All right walking in the world, so on and so forth. Those are the core. They must not change. You understand? Now, how you now go about it, there will not be probably certain specifics that God will give you. And that's really like for some of you, when you reach out to me and tell me, uh, sir, you know, I want to just know the things I'm supposed to, you know, um, teach my guys and so on and so forth. I'll ask you, what is your own plan to teach them? That's what I always ask. And then I'll look through your plan and then I'll vet it. I'll say, okay, do this, do this, do that, do this. And then I, sometimes I'll ask you, what is God putting in your heart right now to talk to you? That's it. You understand? That, that's actually how it works. It's that simple. So you won't just look at it and say, mm, they did this one now. Let's go and do. They did this one. That's not how it's done. Vision. Vision. Have vision in work of ministry. Have vision. Stay in one place. Vision gives you peace of mind. A lot of pressure that people are going through in the work of ministry is because they lack vision. That's the reason why you can't borrow money in bank to do what you normally cannot afford to do. And I say, close up church. You don't have vision. That's just it. Whatever we cannot afford, we don't need it. It's simple. That's it. The day we need it, we'll be able to afford it. If we still cannot afford it, we don't need it yet. It's that simple. Vision. Don't not put everyone on energy pressure. Oh, everybody's using this kind of equipment now. Oh, we have to use it too. Everybody's using this kind of stage now. We have to use it too. Mm -hmm. Vision. Vision. Because what vision also does to you, interestingly, is as much as vision gives you drive, vision gives you patience. I don't know why I even let to say this because to be honest, I didn't plan to make this much emphasis on vision. But that's the reality. Vision doesn't give you drive alone. It gives you patience. Because what vision also makes you realize is that this thing is achievable over time. Do you understand? You know, I said something before. I heard it from a man of God. Interestingly, it came to my heart again in church today. The response to the urgency of the gospel is not haste. It is seriousness. You see, a lot of people are doing things in haste. And let me tell you one thing about haste. Haste can spread, but it spreads thin. Haste can spread, though, but it will spread thin. What actually has impact over time is what has roots. I'll say that again. Haste can spread, but it spreads thin. There is no depth to haste. You will have done a lot, too, but by the time you look at it, you see, ah, there's no roots in this thing. If bridge should blow, it will blow it away. Nothing creates impact like roots. Nothing. And if what you really have is vision, it will come with patience. Because you will recognize that there is a certain level of conviction you cannot build unless with time. Unless with time. Any disciple, well, anybody who has been for a while now knows this. You you don't get excited by the way people are responding. You know? Ah, you don't. Yeah, wait, again, that disciple come. 
after three months, the job is always showing up. It's showing up for every meeting. Uh, you might not be saying, ah, Motorombo, Omori, ah, cover the world. Now, this is not to say, of course, that you know you don't believe the best of people, but this is just to say it calms you down. Because you recognize that excitement doesn't equate conviction. There will be a time when all the excitement will clear from your eyes. You know, for some of you, let me give you a very good example. The first time probably you joined the discipleship class, your body was doing ginger. Eh? <laughs> yes, discipleship class. You know, remember when I told you, you know, we have our meeting times, times of prayer, times of study, you know, and stuff like that. We even do assignments sometimes and so on and so forth. You might be thinking, ah, okay. Yes, now it's the word. Cover it everywhere. <laughs> ah, it's the word, sir. In my heart, sir. I'm ready, sir. Full of passion, sir. Full of bone. Okay, what's the problem? Now, you join the discipleship class now. Maybe the first two weeks, the prayer meetings you don't meet. The teachings, in fact, in fact, and it's something that I've noticed. <laughs> the teachings were even one of the first set of people to be showing up. Just that, Jim, Jim, everything is there. Then, after two weeks, the excitement now clears away. The real work now begins to show up. Just that, you now have to wake up by 5 a.m. The day when you read into the midnight, into around like 1 a.m. or 2 a.m. Say, you know, let me say something. Say, you know that. Think about the fact that, you know, in this type of class, I think from we started praying every morning, Wednesday, 5 a.m., Wednesday, 5 a.m., or Friday, 5 a.m., 5 a.m. to 6 a.m. I think we started um, in, I think that would have been 2020. We started in 20, is it 20? Ah, Spirit of God, I don't, oh, it's not, sorry, 2021, that was last year. I think it's last year that we started, all right? Around, probably around like February last year, February, March last year, 5 a.m., 6 a.m. She you know. For somebody to be praying 5 a.m. to 6 a.m. on Wednesday and Friday for two years, for, for good to two years now, over a year. Right now, it's like over a year and let me just say over a year and about seven, eight months. For you to do something like that, can you know that it's not, it's not excitement anymore. Excitement has cleared out of your eyes. Do you understand? For, it's no more excitement. And if you, I mean, for those of you who, I mean, consistently, you know, about 90% of the parameters are taken by me. It's intentional. Now, the times are coming when, of course, I would, there are other people that are going to take it and stuff like that. But there's something I'm trying to drive, which I really hope you get, such that in your own personal discipleship as well, don't, don't have prayer meetings that you are not present for. It shows that you are serious. And that's the thing. A lot of times, the people you are training can also see it. So you said prayer meetings by 5 a.m. You, you didn't get there until 5.15. Your disciples go to the prayer meeting before you. And you think they are going to take you seriously. It can't happen. That's the thing. You said prayer meeting is supposed to be 5 a.m. Then, five minutes to five, you now send one of them message. And something came up. And because of that, and because I mean, as far as the or guy in charge, if you say something came up, who can, who can battle with the Lord? <laughs> who can argue with you? So if you say, ah, something came up, something came up. No, the amount of God, something came up. So something came up here. So your guys are praying, you are not there. Oh, serious. Then you're not wondering why have you received have you received words for the nations? It's like even, even a village is not listening. They can't listen. Because even you, you are not taking yourself seriously. How will people who are listening to you take you seriously? Do you understand? So when we find, for example, if I saw we've been having prayer meetings 5 a.m. to 6 a.m. Almost going to and I'm the one leading most of the time. You know, it's not my excitement. So, so when I talk to someone, just say, I slept late. There are times when we have prayer meetings at 5 a.m. I didn't sleep until around 2.33. 2.33. 2.33. 2.33. 2.33. 2.33. 2.33. 2.33. 2.33. 2.33. 2.33. 2.33. 2.33. 2
think, for example, preparation for KCM. The week of KCM, for example, I didn't sleep. There was no night I slept anything earlier than 1 a.m. or 2 a.m. Throughout that week that we were praying by 5 a.m. There was no, there was actually no night I slept earlier than 2 a.m. There was none. No. But then I have to be awake by 5. And I was feeling, I mean, folks who were close to me, I wasn't feeling well at all. I had a very stressful month. I wasn't feeling well at all. I had to show up. Now, that kind of thing, you know, cause excitement, Luju. Don't, don't lie to yourself. Unless this thing, you'll be feeling sick in your body. You should pray. As you're praying in tongues, you'll be feeling like you just lie down on the bed. And in fact, interestingly, if, if you're praying in your bedroom, you'll be looking at the bed like this. Ah! You may get a table before me, brother, in Kote, lie down. That you just rest in the finished works. But no, that's the so excitement has cleared. It is now conviction. So you understand that it is conviction. Time, time, it takes time to build excitement doesn't last beyond or, or tried one month, it has gone. Then conviction now comes. That's when conviction is being built. That point in time when you don't feel like doing it, when you are doing it, that's actually where you are building conviction. That's where the real work is going on. Unfortunately, most people don't make it up until that point. They lose this moment, excitement goes away. That's it. In fact, that's the same thing that happens even in relationships. They are, ah, I'm not more feeling this thing anymore. You're not more feeling. Were you feeling your school that you always kept going? I'm not more feeling this thing anymore. Thing, this thing, where do you think you are going to? Oh, Lord, because <laughs> don't mind me now. But that's the thing. So it doesn't just work with excitement, conviction. Look at Ephesians 4. Ephesians 4, from verse 11 to 13. Ephesians 4, 11 to 13. It says, And he gave some apostles, <clears throat> and some prophets, and some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers. He says, For the perfection of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. So there is a fall. Can you see that? So it's not just, you, you need to. Realize a pastor is not just there for whatever you think he should be. There is a reason there is a pastor. Then the reason there is an apostle. So you need to understand there are certain things, for example, that it is not like a part of vision is also recognized by place in your life. I'm not your life coach. I'm not a therapist. So I'm not going to talk to you, and my conversation with you will be outside God's word. It can never. You need to recognize any advice I'm going to give you, and I've told you guys this before. I'm going to teach about it. That discipleship is not just. While discipleship is fundamentally around God's word, the fact that God's word influences your every area of your life also means as your disciple or as someone who is training you, it means I actually do have access because of God's word into every area of your life. So I can ask you, for example, how your relationship is going. I can ask you, for example, how your health is, how your finances are, how your family is, so on and so forth. But even when it comes to those things, I'm not going to talk to you like I'm a career coach. Do you understand? So even I'm talking to you, for example, about your finances, it's not out of place for me to ask you how how much have you been giving recently? How much did you give last time? Just how much are you? How much did you give? And this is also where trust comes in, which is also what I'm going to speak about. You shouldn't be disciple by someone you don't trust. If if you don't trust the person, don't be. Just there is no reason. See, it's just because things have been bastardized in the church. You shouldn't have. There shouldn't be a problem with your pastor knowing how much you earn. It's not a bad. It's not. A, it's actually a bad thing. But I mean, in places where, I mean, they don't even know how much you earn yet. They are already billing you non-stop. Just now, so you two, you want to play it safe. If I can't tell them how much I'm actually earning, they'll be ah, so please do. Just now, but if you actually have somebody who you know, this person cares about me, you will know that it's not big. If he knows how much I mean, it's actually no big deal. There's no problem. He will even always want to come through for me. That's it. Just now. So now, even when I talk to you about finances, for example, now, of course, a part of spiritual growth with finances is understanding you have to work. A part of 
God's word influencing your finances is divine favor. Stuff like that. Now, of course, when I talk to you, I'm going to let you, I'm always going to make you cautious of those things. So maybe I'm talking to you, for example, you're saying, ah, sir, I don't even know the way my finances have been going lately and stuff like that. When you say, no, don't talk like that. Do you understand? God's favor is working for your finances. The angelic ministry is working for your finances. So on and so forth. Now, of course, I can give you some tips here and there. Now, I'm giving you those tips because scripture actually says you must work with your hands. If any man will not work, he should not eat. So at the end of the day, my, my speaking to you is still within the confines of God's word. So I'm not, I'm not just your friend. I'm not just your friend. I will not be talking to you about, you know, the mother was not um, sipping wine, talking about your um, relationship. I saying, ah, now wow, this guy is safe or something like that. Don't get, don't get you wrong. At the end of the day, my found, the foundation of our communication is still God's word. So there is a focus to it. There's a focus. And there's something key about discipleship. Don't just let your discussion with your disciple just be about career. Yeah, that's not a disciple. Yes, that, that can be a career mentor or a mentee, but that's not a disciple. Your disciple cannot just be around fashion. Ah, sir, so there Ah, no, 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 so sorry. Now those things are not bad. Just that school for how to go. I like this kind of conversations. To be honest, I do. But the idea of it is that's not the that's not the primary focus of our discussion. So that's the two suits now. The next up, how are your disciples? That will follow up one last. What's happening with this person? What's happening with that person? Now that's how ministry is done. That's how ministry is done. So there is focus. So there is a reason for the pastor. Do you understand? For the fivefold ministry gifts, it says for the perfection of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. It says till we all come. So can you see there is a till? So there is a till which already lets you know that means there is a focus, there is a vision. There's something we are looking. So I'm not just doing ministry wasting my time. No, there's actually something I'm trying to achieve. The one I'm trying to drive you at. So me too, I must be able to look at it. When you join this discipleship class and you right now, what has changed? I must be able to look at your assignments notes six months ago. Look at your assignments notes now and notice the difference. A very good example. Some of you currently who are working on the, the book that we, are, that we are going to be currently releasing. Now, I didn't just know we'll be writing a book. I'd known from the start. So when we were doing assignments, for example, and I'll tell you right and stuff, I had the goal. I have book. That's it. I know what I'm driving at. Do you understand me? And there's some of you, for example, who are not part of those working on that book right now, who will work on new books next year. Because that's why you were being trained. It's not that simple. So you have a goal in mind. And that goal, you stick with it. Just move left or right, be shaking here and there like you have no plan. Face what you are doing. You know, if you really have vision, you won't even pay attention to what other people are doing because your work will consume you. So now, with all the things we've now said, now when do you, when the other times now, now sit down, you now check, you now go to Instagram page of a particular minister. You want to see what they are doing. What don't you are wasting your time? Focus on your work. Focus on your work. Build strength in your vision. Let it give you conviction. Let it give you patience. Oh, wow. Time is long gone. I'm just going to round up now. So, there is something you are aiming at. Look at what it says there. It says, till we all come in the unity of the faith. So, there is a goal. Till we all come in the unity of the faith, of the knowledge of the Son of God, unto a perfect man, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Let's round up with this. Go to Acts chapter 20. Verse 26 to 27. I actually thought I was going to be able to finish up this introduction, but we'll continue. Actually, 20 from verse 26 to 27. It says, Wherefore I take you to record this day that I am pure from the blood of all men, for I have not shown to declare unto you 
all the counsel of God. Can you see that? Oh, so there is an all to the counsel of God. So in part of your, your vision is fundamentally this. I want to raise a rounded minister of the gospel. I don't want to raise someone who is deficient in some things. I mean, if I raise a like oh more righteousness by faith, but he has terrible behavior. Mm-mm. I don't want to raise a disciple who is so high in spiritual gifts, but he's not kind. Mm-mm. So there is an all. There's an entirety of the counsel of God's word. A minister of the gospel cannot afford to be a specialist. You can't be a specialist, though. You must be rounded. You know, there are certain topics that they are more comfortable to teach. Everybody just has their predisposition to certain things. There are certain topics that are more easy for me to teach. Genuinely, they are. Whether from experience or stuff, they're just more easy for me to teach. But I cannot just afford to teach things that are more easy for me to teach. I must teach everything. I must teach everything because your life, everything will affect your life. That's the thing. So, for example, a very good example of that is last year, for example, when I thought about this year, I heard, I'm already calling it last year, this year, when I thought about money. Genuinely, I don't really like teaching about stuff like that. Honestly, I don't. I, I'm not a fan. Money, relationships, so I just feel if we teach you the word well and you have brain, you will know what to do. But, but that's the thing. I've, I've come to realize number one, you don't assume for people. You can't assume. You understand? You have to actually teach them about it. You know, they assume that, oh, because they understand salvation, they understand how a believer is supposed to behave, they'll just know how they're supposed to behave when they're in relationships. No. No. You have to teach about it. So that's the thing. So I cannot afford to just be a preacher who just likes to teach deep things. I just like to teach, you know, um, um, revelations from scriptures and so on and so forth. No. If the scriptures actually teaches about marriage, if the scripture actually teaches about money, I must also teach about those things, whether or not I like it. Do you understand? So don't just be a specialist. You, you need to know. Do you understand? You, sometimes you tell yourself, what are my strong points? What are my weak points? What are the topics I don't really like to talk about? Do you understand? Because of the people, I have to talk about it. Because at the end of the day, look at what it says. It says, I'm free from the blood of women. So you need to realize what this thing is. This thing is not, a, it's not an ego context. It's not a context. Because let me tell you also the, the truth. There are certain topics that when it teaches, people just look at you as some man of God. That's the truth. You understand? Like, the way people just look at you when you're teaching relationship. Like, <laughs> you understand? It's not. And now that's not to say that when you're teaching relationship, you don't still go into a good, in-depth study of God's word. You should. Do you understand? And in fact, I, I, I'm actually going to teach about Relationships come February, February this year, and it's going to be a theological approach to studying relationships. You understand? Not all these things that most people are doing, just coming to come and just be giving people tips and tricks and stuff like that that never really work at the end of the day. All right, we're going to do good study of scriptures. Of course, instructions will follow, but it will be based on the foundation of study of the word. All right, we'll talk about relationships, talk about things like that. So that's the thing. So you have to be rounded as a minister of the gospel. You must teach things of the spirit, though. You must teach it. You must teach favor. In people's lives. Because that's the thing. This thing will affect people's lives. So if you focus on just one thing, that area you don't focus on, people will be deficient in it. I've seen this thing again and again. And this is the reason I'm going to say this. You would notice that there are certain circles. Go and pay attention. Certain circles that are very loud, for example, on ministry, God's word, and so on and so forth. And we're not so loud on divine provision, say as regards their finances. Go and check. You will always see that consistent thing among their members, they don't do well financially. They don't. Because that's the thing. You see, believers are made to respond to God's word. So if you don't show them a particular possibility in the word, they won't, they won't work in it. 
And that's also the reason why it seems as though certain places where they didn't focus so much on ministry, so much on a proper exegetical teaching of God's word, and we're always loud on favor, supernatural, you know, um, things happening in their finances and so on and so forth. You will see those things there. That's just what it is. Because you see, whatever you emphasize, people will work it. It's just that simple. <laughs> That's just what it is. Whatever you emphasize, because these people are believers, they have a nature that responds to God's word. And this thing is actually in God's word. They will respond to it. That's just what it is. So now you have to, because you recognize that, you know, oh, this is not about me. It's about the people. If I don't teach them, they won't work in it. Is this in God's word? It's there. Then I have to teach them. It's that simple. So now it now puts responsibility on you to now learn it well and teach it. Little wonder Paul said in 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 15, study, be diligent to show yourself as approved unto God, a workman that needs not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. So there is responsibility on you. Responsibility. You have to teach the entire council. The entire council of God's word. You know, I'm going to, you know, next week when we pick up from here, I'm going to talk about, I'm just going to lay some things about how to decide what to teach. Because a lot of times you don't, a lot of people don't really know. Say, how do I know what to teach? There is a way. Let me just or let me just say this as a roundup that the, the primary way is that you must have a plan. So having seen that there's an old council of God's word, you must actually have a plan for everything you teach. Let me tell you something. For example, I always say this thing jokingly, but it's actually serious. Like I'm actually being honest. All of our special meetings up till 2025, up till at least Caruso Bible Conference 2025, I know what I'm teaching. Oh, that's the truth. Now that's now that's for the major meetings. All of our monthly meetings up till about August next year. August next year, September next year. The topics are out. Okay, one year already. Do you understand? I know. And so that's the reason why there are times when I'll be teaching, I'll say, you know, don't worry, we'll cover this thing by this time. It's because there is a plan. So it's not just that I just wake up one morning and just say, come, people from What does my schedule open for for Bible study? I'll teach them this now, then I teach you. No. There's a plan. So my plan involves, okay, what are the things I want to see in them? What are the things I want them to do? What are the things I want them to know? That's what informs my plan. That now makes me think. So there's a plan. Do you understand? Now, there are still two other things that are very important that you must subject your plan to. All right? But let's just stay with that first of all. The old concept. So I'm saying all of that to so now say, now, you're having disciples. You must have a plan. You must have topics you are starting from. Maybe you are starting from them understanding the Bible. Oh, I noticed that whenever we gather together to pray, you don't pray well. Okay, we'll I'll teach a little bit on prayer. Maybe give them two charges, two meetings. Where we'll, I'll give them a charge on prayer. Just so that they pray better. You understand? Okay, my plan. After I teach them on understanding their Bible, okay, I can then teach them. They don't pray in tongues. I can now maybe teach them on the things of the Spirit. Because now they already have learned how to study their Bible well. So if I show them some things from the Bible, they won't be confused. Okay. Teach them on things of the Spirit. After teaching them on things of the Spirit, now salvation. Because that's a very important foundation. Salvation. So that's how to think. So now you now create a plan. Okay. I have the one-year plan. I have, that's, that is how to think as a disciple. Now you now begin to... Now, ministry will become sweet. Because there is now a vision. There is now a goal. Do you understand? Now you can measure your progress. That is how ministry is done. Not just don't do anything anywhere, anyhow, just how you like it. No, no. Ministry is done with vision. Discipleship is done with vision. Thank you for listening. We're sure that it was an amazing time. For questions and inquiries, reach out to us on carysoul.mini at gmail.com. 
we call you blessed.